Chapter 2 of The Princess and the Plowman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. L. Zelke. The Princess and the Plowman by Florence Morse Kingsley. Chapter 2. A woman may fall romantically in love with another woman, given the requisite psychological correspondences, and the phenomenon becomes inevitable. Men are prone thoughtlessly to ignore or ridicule so aesthetic a relation between women. Nevertheless, they sometimes stumble upon it to their undoing. These innocent, shadowy premonitions of a larger fate for the most part have their birth, flourish, and die under the arching elms of those tranquil New England villages where the strenuous processes incident to the higher unfoldment of the female intellect may be said to possess the place as a soul possesses its body. When in such a college town, Mary Adams tall and fair, her twenty studious years empty of vain flirtations, first set serious gray eyes upon Felice Vivian, tiny and dark, as a rich red rose is dark. This very real, though illogical, passion sprang into instant being. The two clave to each other, if not after the world-famous masculine pattern of Damon and Pythias, or David and Jonathan, like innumerable women lovers, uncelebrated in prose or rhyme, since the days of Ruth and Naomi. Mary Adams had chosen her present scholastic career in order to escape the irksome conditions of a home, which in reality was little more than a respectable shelter, and which of late she had found acutely intolerable, and this because of the posthumous solicitude of a paternal aunt, coldly embodied in the legal phraseology of a last will and testament. This worthy female, herself unwedded to the day of her death, had nevertheless, or perhaps more exactly because of the fact, conceived marriage to be of the highest possible importance to a woman. She had, therefore, being of a sound and disposing mind and memory, given and bequeathed the whole of a very handsome fortune to her dearly beloved and only surviving relative, Mary Adams, with the very reasonable condition attached that said niece, having duly survived to the age of twenty-three years, should be legally married to the man of her choice. The testator further provided that should the said Mary Adams fail to survive to a marriageable age, or, having survived, should she refuse to comply with the specified condition, the estate was to pass in its entirety into the hands of certain trustees to be devoted to the foundation of an institution of learning for the higher education of the native females of the Hawaiian Islands.
old Judge Chantry, sole executor of the Lydia Adams estate and guardian of the girl, had been particularly explicit as to the one condition attached to the untrammeled ownership of the property on the occasion selected by him as proper to a full understanding of the terms of the will. The faithful interview took place in the library of the Chantry Mansion on the morning of the girl's nineteenth birthday. Between the tender age of six, when the control of her person and prospective fortune had passed into the hands of Judge Chantry and the present day, Mary had grown from a small, shy, silent child, with eyes much too big for her pale, narrow face, into a tall, slender woman, still pale, with the exquisite pallor of a rose-tinted white flower. Her mouth, brilliantly red and curved like a heart, seldom unclosing in speech or laughter. Her gray eyes, watching the world, calm, serious, unafraid. She might have been beautiful, had she ever thought of beauty in connection with herself. But the dull routine of governesses, tutors, and textbooks, conducted in the large, dull rooms of the large, dull house, had left her, if not exactly dull, something very like it. Judge Chantry told himself, with suppressed irritation, that the girl was limp as a string. His voice, never mild, took on an added note of harshness, as he noted the easy curves of her pliant young body and the careless masses of her heavy red hair, tumbled rather untidily behind her little ears. The girl's face had expressed neither surprise nor indignation as he pointedly set forth, in language carefully stripped of legal verbiage, the unalterable conditions of the will. Understand, he concluded sharply, you must marry on or before your twenty-third birthday, or lose all interest in your aunt's estate. Failing to do this, I am bound to tell you that there is no provision made for your future, beyond the very inconsiderable amount coming to you from the estate of your deceased parents. Do you quite follow me? Quite, replied Mary, without display of emotion. I think, she added, after a thoughtful pause, that Aunt Lydia Adams might have trusted my judgment as well as her own. I have never thought before about being married. I shall never think of it now. Tut, said her guardian, you will marry, of course. How can I marry, sir, when I don't know any man? The virginal simplicity of the question brought a simulacrum of a smile to the shrewd eyes of the judge. I know several men, he observed meditatively. In fact, I know the man for the emergency, which is far better than knowing a thousand worthless fortune hunters, such as would gather about you like hungry hounds, should the terms of this uh, peculiar will be made known. He paused and tapped noiselessly with his dry old fingers 
upon the blotting pad which lay before him, while he studied the face of his ward with unaccustomed eyes, to wit, the eyes of a man. "'You have grown into a not-bad-looking woman, Mary,' he said at length, "'with a Paris gown or two, and diamonds. There are diamonds, you know, which belong to your aunt.' The girl stared at her guardian with unsmiling gravity. "'What do you mean to do with me, sir?' she asked. She did not change her position in the great carved chair in which she was sitting by a hair's breadth, yet the judge, who was still watching her with the eyes of a younger man, became aware of something like an obstinate stiffening in the long lines of her figure. "'I mean to present you to my nephew, Jerome Chantry,' he answered without circumlocution. "'He is a shrewd, conservative man, who would look after both you and your fortune, as they should be looked after.' "'Do you mean that I am to marry him?' "'I should hardly have put it that way,' replied the judge dryly. "'But why not?' "'Jerome's wife died. Uh, let me see. It must be something like four years ago. He will doubtless be obliged to me for calling his attention to the matter. And you?' Mary arose from her chair. Slowly, as she did everything, her young slenderness and the exceeding fine whiteness of her skin, glimpsed above her close-fitting, dull-colored gown, giving her the quaint, old-world look of a medieval princess. "'I shall not marry Jerome Chantry,' she said tranquilly. "'I shall not marry anyone.' A month later she acquainted her guardian with a decision which she had been pondering slowly, as she pondered all things. "'If I am not to have any money,' she said, I must earn my own living. I shall teach. It is the only thing I can do. I have decided to go to college. I shall graduate before I am twenty-three. I can then take care of myself. The old man permitted himself a dubious smile. Very well, he said. And meanwhile, you will kindly reflect upon the matter of which I have spoken. You will have ample opportunity during the four years of your college course. If you arrive at a different decision... He paused and looked carefully at the girl. She had undoubtedly changed subtly since he had last talked with her. Jerome Chantry, who had been duly presented, had said in his guarded way that he considered his uncle's ward an exceedingly handsome girl being a man of the world, not unacquainted with the ways of women, he had deeply deplored the indiscreet utterances of his elderly relative. Nevertheless, he expressed himself as not at all adverse to the idea of a marriage with the heiress. But neither Judge Chantry nor his sapient nephew counted upon Felice Vivian, nor upon the fact that a woman may fall romantically in love with another woman. 
In the course of her college life, together with much extraneous information, Mary discovered two astonishing facts. She found that she had never yet loved anyone, and also, which was far more important, that Felice Vivian was the most loving, lovable, and altogether adorable being upon earth. All of this wrought an astonishing change in Mary, and in her thoughts about nearly everything. On her part, Miss Vivian, keenly enjoying adoration of any and all sorts from her babyhood up, and well used to it too, regarded the tall, fair, serious Mary as a most interesting phenomenon. Her undeniable beauty, her solitary state in the world, her surprising ignorance of the commoner experiences of American girlhood, impressed Miss Vivian as being altogether strange and delightful. She set herself to explore her friend's mind with the same enthusiastic interest which she would have bestowed upon the pages of a fascinating romance, and having speedily arrived at divers' decisions and opinions, she unhesitatingly undertook the formation of Mary's taste, the molding of her likes and dislikes, and the direction of her future course in life. Thus it came about that individuals whom Mary had heretofore regarded in her customary mild and large-eyed way as pseudo-providences were promptly classified and labeled by the clever Miss Vivian as very ordinary persons indeed. Judge Chantry, for example, who had figured in Mary Adams' life as an awful and inexorable deity, elevated upon an inaccessible Olympian peak, represented to her childish eyes by a peculiar large chair placed in a peculiar spot of the Chantry Library, now promptly descended under Miss Vivian's airy supervision to a plane almost beneath notice. "'I can see very plainly, Mary,' that your guardian is a cross, disagreeable old person, quoth the intelligent Felice. I should advise you not to pay too much attention to him from now on. Men are so preposterously opinionated anyway, one must always manage them. As for that widower creature, Jerome, he is absolutely impossible." and the idea of your being expected to marry him is absurd. I shall not marry anyone, declared Mary soulfully. I shall never love anyone but you, Felice. Being in a secluded spot, the two girls paused to kiss each other rapturously. You certainly are the darlingest thing in the world, Mary, murmured Miss Vivian. "'But it does seem a shame to lose all that money.' "'Being of a prettily practical turn of mind, "'Miss Vivian hearkened back more than once "'to the matter of the higher education "'of the native females of the Hawaiian Islands, 
and its too obvious relation to the Lydia Adams estate. In the intervals between lectures, recitations, and other functions of a purely scholastic nature, the two girls applied themselves unremittingly to the study of this vastly interesting sociological problem, which assumed vaster and more far-reaching proportions in their youthful eyes as they contemplated it. "'There must be some way out of it, honey,' declared Miss Vivian energetically. "'Couldn't you break that cruel will?' Mary shook her lovely head. "'I wouldn't do that, even if I could,' she said positively. "'I am sure Aunt Lydia intended to be very kind to me. "'She was so very sure every woman ought to marry, "'though I can't see why, when she didn't marry.' Of course, she could hardly have been expected to guess what sort of person I was going to be. And she couldn't have known about you, Felice. Miss Vivian pursed up an adorable scarlet bud of a mouth. I wish I had been acquainted with your Aunt Lydia, she observed with a slight vindictiveness of manner. She must have been the cleverest, most original person in the world to have thought such a thing as compelling you or anyone else to marry. Why, no woman in the whole world would ever marry if she was compelled to. Mary's large, clear eyes beamed a mild surprise. Was it clever of her? she murmured. I have never thought of it in that way, and yet I have been told that she was very clever indeed. She made it a point to never do anything in a commonplace way. What did she suppose was to become of you if all her money went to those horrid Hawaiian females? demanded Miss Vivian with open irritation. If she had been really interested in any human being beside herself, she would have thought of that. Mary shook her head. It's all a mystery to me, she sighed. Perhaps she took it for granted that I would die young. Or, she added meditatively, she might have been afraid I would grow into a disagreeable, useless old maid and never do any good with her money. Dearest, cooed Miss Vivian, slipping her small brown hand into Mary's large white one, you are everything that is beautiful and noble and grand. If your Aunt Lydia could only have known you as I do, she would have left you everything to do with exactly as you choose. If she had said that I must never, never marry, and that I must devote my life and all the money to the women of Hawaii, oh, Felice, that would be a life worth living. Do you know what would have happened if she had done that, demanded Miss Vivian incisively, Mary waited, large-eyed for the oracle. You would have been absolutely determined to marry, and you would have adored the first man you laid eyes upon after finding it out. It would be a logical consequence, honey, don't you see? In that case, the whole stream of your intelligence would have been focused upon the idea of marriage, 
as it is now deflected from it, and the result would have been quite as inevitable, though exactly opposite. Mary looked hurt. I may not be clever enough to answer you out of the psychology lecture we had this morning, she said with dignity, but you know, Felice, that I love you too much to ever care for any man, and besides... Sweetheart, exclaimed Miss Vivian, with instant contrition, as if I could ever lose sight of that. If you and I could go to Hawaii together... We could build a college the way Tennyson's princess did, and not a man should ever set foot inside the place. You should be the glorious founder and head, and I would be the dean. Oh, Mary! The two clasped hands in speechless ecstasy before the airy splendor of this vision. And to think that we could do it, sighed Mary, if only... "'If only!' echoed Miss Vivian, and lifted her brown eyes, in which lurked a tiny demon of mischief, invisible to the serious Mary. The two girls were strolling down a quiet street of the village, bareheaded after the college custom, though the cold spring wind whistled keenly through the budding boughs overhead. "'Dearest,' she went on, "'we must devise some plan.' by which we can circumvent Aunt Lydia and the somewhat singular spectacle of a tall, comfortably stout, immaculately groomed man, who was approaching them rapidly, interrupted the words which trembled upon Miss Vivian's lips. At the same instant, the slight stiffening of Mary's long neck and the look of haughty displeasure which she turned upon the stranger appraised the intelligent Felice of his identity. "'Is it the bereaved Jerome?' she whispered, and preened herself ever so slightly. "'How dare he come here?' replied Mary. Her usually mild eyes seemed congealed into clearest ice. Her reddish hair appeared to emit fiery sparkles of indignation. Miss Vivian, on the contrary, dimpled sweetly when somewhat ungraciously introduced to the stranger. She was so glad to meet Mr. Chantry. Dear Mary had spoken of him often. Mr. Chantry bent a hopeful, inquiring gaze upon the clear profile, which Mary turned persistently in his direction. Then he looked down into the small, dark, sparkling face uplifted to his with pleased interest. I am delighted to know that Miss Adams has thought of me with sufficient interest to mention my name, he said urbanely, and added, I am frequently thinking of her. You are mistaken, said Mary distinctively. I never think of you. I do not wish to think of you. She was looking straight ahead of her. Her fine dark brows bent above the clear, colorless gray of her eyes, hence she did not see the charming smile which Felice charitably bestowed upon the discomfited Chantry. The smile appeared to convey amused comprehension, intelligent sympathy, and a vague promise of cooperation which Mr. Chantry appropriated with mistaken gratitude.
"'You will excuse me, I am sure,' murmured the astute Miss Vivian, after a few moments, devoted to desultory conversation, in which Mary obstinately declined to participate. "'I have a lecture to prepare.' An hour later she came upon Mary sitting quite alone upon the steps of the terrace with a five-pound box of confectionery in her lap. "'Well, honey, has he gone?' she inquired, eyeing her friend with quiet, justifiable curiosity. "'Yes, and for ever, I hope,' said Mary, depositing the box upon the ground with a gesture of loathing. She turned suddenly, and hiding her eyes on Felice's small shoulder, burst into stormy tears. "'Oh, dearest,' she whispered passionately, "'I hate men.' especially that man. But I do love you. Miss Vivian's delicate hand played about the beautiful bent head like a brown butterfly. Sweetest, she cooed vaguely. Then, with a brisk little shake, tell me, did he propose? No, but I told him that I should never marry him. You told him before he asked you? Oh, Mary! There was no use of my pretending that I did not understand, said Mary haughtily. I did understand, and I wanted him to understand. I couldn't have him coming between us, Felice. Miss Vivian drew a long breath. It is quite possible that you will not always feel about me, as you do now, Mary," she said, slowly and clearly, as one would speak to a dull child. And afterward, you know, you might be sorry and blame me because you were poor and alone in the world, when you might just as well have been rich and happy. Mary's clear eyes overflowed with tears. "'But I couldn't have him come in between us,' she repeated helplessly. "'And so I told him.' Miss Vivian sprang to her feet with a vixenish little laugh. "'Come in this minute and go to work on your chemistry,' she commanded. "'If you will insist upon being a poverty-stricken old maid, you shall at least be a clever one. And picking up the despised offering of bonbons, she walked briskly away. Poor Mary, her stately head hanging like a shamed child's, followed meekly. End of chapter 2